So there's backbench concern that the UK government is prioritizing economic ties to China and with China over human rights values. Um, and that's not particularly a recent concern, but it's become more and more apparent as the news comes out of Xinjiang that that is at the forefront of British parliamentarians' mind. But MPs are not, uh, the majority of MPs are not in the mind that we should completely disengage from China, um, that we should be pushing for complete uh, decoupling. That's not really where they're at. What we're often lacking is a, if this, then what? So there's very few people putting out what uh, an idea of what they would like the relationship to look like beyond what they don't want, if that makes sense. Beijing to Britain, the leading coverage of Beijing slash UK relations on the internet uh, is brought to you by the recently unanonymized Sam Hogg, who previously worked in the private sector and then in uh, Parliament on China issues and is now substacking uh, full time. Uh, Co-hosting with me today, Callan Quinn, China Talks uh, UK-based editor who knows a whole lot more about this topic than I do. Thanks for having me. Sam, let's start with a little bit of background about why you, um, how you came to start this newsletter. Sure. So I was working as a researcher at a uh, strategic advisory company um, until about 2019. I was living also between Hong Kong and the UK and following the Hong Kong protests very closely. And I was uh, very interested as to why, in my opinion, at the time, the, the UK government was potentially not um, doing enough or acting in a particular way around the Hong Kong protests. So I, I wanted to work in UK-China relations, and I launched Beijing to Britain as an anonymous uh, weekly briefing, at the time aggregating all UK-China news and sending out to a list of people who worked in UK-China relations uh, with the aim that one of them would employ me eventually. And I then got a job working for an MP on China policy, among other issues. Kids. Learn from Sam, start a Substack. change your life. Okay, so let's start with, it's 2015. Uh, Xi Jinping's been in power for two years. He's traveling the world, meeting heads of state. He comes to the UK on his first official trip. Um, and he's sitting in David Cameron's local, having a pint with the PM. Uh, you know, photographers at the ready. What's the mood in parliament towards China at that time? Yeah, so uh, the mood in Parliament towards China is China is going to be a significant source um, of investment and cultural connection to the UK. Uh, the UK government is very much on board with the golden era rhetoric. Um, you know, you mentioned that they had a pint and pint in their pub. They also had a fish and chips, and they went to visit uh, Man City <laughs> Stadium, where they took a selfie with Aguero. So things are in full swing, and things are going well for UK-China relations, and. Bumbling away slightly on the horizon is uh, Huawei as an issue, which becomes one of the key themes over the next couple of years. But at this point, it's not a problem. Okay, so talk about that. How does it transition from the golden age to troubles with Huawei? So there's a, exactly. So Huawei is one of uh, you know three or four topics that start to draw a significant amount of skepticism from from British politicians in Parliament. One of them is Huawei, which um, the British government until 2020 is on board with having in the 5G network here. But early on in 2018, one of the UK's intelligence services uh, effectively says that they don't really trust Huawei's involvement in the UK's digital infrastructure. You also have Hong Kong as an issue. Um, there are a series of protests, which obviously culminates in 2019. But watching the way that uh, the Hong Kong protests crack down, are cracked down on by the Hong Kong authorities in the eyes of British MPs is a particularly emotive issue. And then, of course, you have reporting starting to emerge around Xinjiang and the way that the Chinese government is treating the Uyghur Muslims. So these three things, coupled with a series of other you know, geopolitical issues, start to sour relations between the parliament, between parliament effectively, and the uh, Chinese government. Although the British government, which is separate from parliament, is not as swayed as parliament is. And are we seeing legislation at this point? No. So there is very little legislation that would uh, imply any sort of um, geopolitical concern as to the UK's relationship with China at this stage. So a few rumblings, but it's business as usual. That's exactly right. You're starting to, for the first time, have uh, MPs connect together around China issues that they don't like. So I, I've raised Huawei there. That's one of the, the sort of precursors to the China Research Group in IPAC in 2020 is the 
gathering of backbench MPs around a China issue that they perceive to be very negative. And what are they? Um, IPAC and the China Research Group. Yeah. So in 2020, early 2020, two new groups emerge on the UK-China scene um, within a couple of weeks of each other, actually, if not days. Uh, one is called the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, or IPAC, and that is a global group of legislators from parliaments and governments all over the world that have come together to share intel on China, um, work out how they can limit uh you know, uh, and, and build resilience to China's investment in various countries and counteract some of what they perceive to be China's in a, inappropriate behavior. That could be in the South China Sea, through to what action they should take on Xinjiang, through to making sure their respective governments aren't trading with China in a way that values uh, economic ties over human rights. And then in the UK, that's chaired by uh, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, who used to lead the uh, Conservative Party, and Baroness Helena Kennedy, who herself is a very impressive human rights campaigner and legislator. You have, within that period too, another group launches called the China Research Group, or the CRG. That's a conservative backbench group of MPs. So for your listeners who may not be across UK politics because they value having a normal sleeping pattern, the Conservative Party is the right-wing party, and the Labour Party is a left-wing party. So a conservative skepticist group towards China is launched, at the time, it's launched by two people. One of them is Tom Tugendhat, who was a Conservative MP and the youngest ever chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee here in the UK, which is a very influential committee that examines the UK's foreign policy and the government's foreign policy. And the second is a guy called Neil O'Brien, who is a very new MP at the time. He's been in there for just over a, just under a year, actually. Uh, and he is uh, he actually was a, a special advisor to George Osborne during the Golden Era. George Osborne was the Chancellor at the time sort of the architect and driving force behind the golden era rhetoric. So it's a very interesting meeting of minds. And the China Research Group, only formed of conservative MPs, very small. And it doesn't uh, campaign around issues as significantly at that point as IPAC does. Um, okay, so that brings us to up to early 2020. And then we have COVID. I'm sure that like really helped UK-China relations kind of go back to the golden era, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So the emergence of COVID is obviously horrific. Uh, the British government becomes rightly consumed with preventing widespread death, working out what strategy is going to work for us, going into lockdown. Um, and what you see quite quickly in some pockets of parliament is anger over China's perceived uh, opaqueness around how it dealt with COVID and how it alerted people to the spread of the disease. Um, you see MPs and peers here start to question whether it's a leak, a lab leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and some people in the intelligence, com uh, intelligence community are also briefing out through papers or even on podcasts, uh, I should add retired members of the intelligence community, that that could be a very likely um, cause of the disease. Um, and another, another thing here, which our prime minister gets COVID and, uh, you know, goes into a pretty hefty... Um, and pretty serious, critical, I forget the exact terminology of what that's called, but he goes to hospital effectively. Um, so when he comes out, the UK's relationship with China is in a slightly different place as it was prior to COVID. And all this time still, you have the issues of the Hong Kong protests. Um, you know, they've come to a pretty horrible head in August 2019. And the British government has declared that the, the Hong Kong government and Chinese government are in violation, ongoing violation of the joint declaration. So COVID is just one string of a couple of issues, Xinjiang. Hong Kong, uh, that is causing a, con a real concern in Parliament around the actions of China. But yet, at the same time, when you go and have a COVID test in the UK and you open up the little NHS box, there's a little ticket inside that, you know, has Chinese writing on and says that this was produced in China. That's exactly right. And so you've hit on uh, a very uh, interesting segment of the UK-China relationship, which is that it's split into several different strands. There's the political re relationship, there's the business relationship, and the sort of economic relationship too. Uh, that's not to really mention the cultural relationship. So we have to go to China for a significant percent of our PPE. We're spending hundreds of millions of pounds a year procuring it from Chinese companies uh, in that year anyway. Um, and it's basically all stations go protect the population as much as possible. Um, doesn't really matter where the PPE is coming from. At the time, uh, 
the government now starts to consider supply chains properly and significantly for the first time. So we're a bit slower than the Americans on that issue. And Johnson tasks his civil service with a project called Project Defend, which is about supply chain resilience and making sure that we don't end up in a situation where we're reliant on one country for stuff like PPE and stuff that powers our NHS. And the fear of what that was will come on to determine policy two years later, a year later in 2022. Protect the country unless you need to have a party. Um, yeah, I will touch on that politically sensitive joke. Thank you for throwing me in there, Callum. That's very <laughs> kind. So uh, for people not following the ins and outs of uh, Parliament in Westminster right now, our Prime Minister has just come through a particularly bruising uh, series of months and weeks, which you could have said at any point over the last six months, to be honest with you. And um, it's it's come out that he had a series of parties that weren't quite parties. They might have been work occasions, et cetera, et cetera, in the Downing Street flat uh, over the course of various lockdowns in the UK. Um, without going too much into detail, there are you know stories of people getting so drunk they were throwing up. They smashed his uh, kids' uh, slide in the garden. And um, some of them were apparently abusive to staff as well who were coming to clean up. So all in all, a very unsavory occasion. Uh, this was during a time when like, people weren't allowed to go visit their dying relative because of COVID. That's exactly well. right. That's exactly right. So, you know, the, the, we had policies like you could meet one other person for a walk outside. And yet we had 35 people, you know, shotting vodka in uh, Downing Street. Uh, he's the first prime minister to have broken the law, living prime minister to have broken the law and hold office. Okay, which brings us to this week and the BBC's revelations. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the BBC has been doing some fantastic work for the last couple of years on Xinjiang and uh, the Uyghur population there and how they're being treated by the PRC. Um, and this week they reported on a series of data leaks or a, a, a number of data leaks they've had uh, called the uh, Xinjiang police files. And these seem to show uh, they had pictures of people who were imprisoned, re-imprisoned. Uh, you know, they talked about shoot to kill policy. Uh, it's, it's all the sort of stuff that really, really is just very difficult to talk about. It's it, it's horrific. And it's the sort of stuff that led uh, Parliament to declare a genocide was taking place last year. Um, it, it's, it's hard to overemphasize in the last two years, especially the role that Xinjiang has had in shaping a parliamentary view of UK-China political relations. So as far back as March last year, you had the Business Committee, which is a committee formed of different MPs from different parties that holds the business department to account and looks at their stuff. They published a report looking at supply chains in Xinjiang and asking if there was forced labor involved in produce that ended up on British shelves. Uh, they produced a series of recommendations around how they would um, like the government to behave and what the government could do on this, including creating a white and black list for companies that could and could not guarantee supply chain transparency uh, if they were sourcing from Xinjiang, which the government rejected. Uh, two months later, the British Parliament would go on to unanimously declare that genocide was taking place. That's not a position that the British government holds. But you can see the theme here, which is during UK-China conversations, Xinjiang is repeatedly, repeatedly referenced. It is a very emotive issue for British parliamentarians. And there are often, um, you don't see as much anymore, but during the sort of peak time, uh, as the trade bill was passing through Parliament in 2021, you would see references to how the Nazis ran their operations too. So it's a it's a very emotive issue, and um, yet this week's reporting will only add to that. In fact, there was an urgent question uh, from a member of IPAC, Nusrat Ghani, on the exact uh, contents of the reporting, the shoot to kill policy, and what happens on an urgent question is British parliamentarians get to go into the House of Commons and they a minister from the department comes forward and they get to ask questions of them. So they're asking, why have we not sanctioned more officials? Why has the government not declared genocide? What more evidence does it need? Why is the government not prohibited or sanctioned these series of companies alleged to be involved uh, in the misery in Xinjiang, for example? Um, have we seen any sort of official reaction? We have. So uh, Liz Truss, who's the foreign secretary, put out a statement, but the government's in a difficult place on this in the sense that they can release statement after statement, um, highlighting the work in their eyes that they think they've done. You know, they often say we have assembled a series of countries around the world to declare, uh, you know, that what's going on here is a gross human rights abuse, or we have led action on this or that. But in the eyes of parliament, 
anything short of declaring genocide is, is actually falling short. So the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is hawkish on China, and you often see that briefed out in the papers um, compared to her predecessor, Dominic Raab, who was uh, less vocal on the issue. Um, but the government hasn't really done anything significant in terms of uh, sanctions since last year when they sanctioned some PRC officials in line with America. Uh, I mean, she's been quite, like Liz Truss, she's been quite hawkish towards Russia as well. And what's interesting about Liz Truss is she has her fair share of detractors, uh, and I am not above criticizing her um, speeches and strategy, but she brought something to the table which Rob had chosen not to bring. So Liz Truss, uh, last year at Chatham House, which is a think tank here in London, very beautiful think tank, premiered this thing called the Network of Liberty, which is her idea for how the UK should conduct itself on the world stage. And that involves... Uh, partnerships with like-minded allies, partnerships with countries that we may not have considered before, all of them coming together around this idea of uh, freedom, um, a lot of quite empty slogans. And that idea has been fleshed out a bit more and more since that was premiered towards the end of last year. So it is kind of awkward, though, because like that's happening around the world, but like not really with the UK in it. So we have USEU, TTC, we have IPEF, we have the Quad, um, and like being out of the European Union like leaves the United Kingdom in a kind of odd spot when it comes to this like global-ing. I guess there's still the G7, right? Exactly. So there is still the G7, and we do have AUKUS now, which is a, you know, a big foreign policy win, if you will, from the UK's point of view. But you're right, by and large, we are uh, left out the equation on a lot of these things. And I think that's what adds emphasis to the network of liberty strategy. Um, I was interested in reading uh, Blinken's speech yesterday, the transcript of it, about not forcing countries to pick a side and understanding that not every country would have the same view of China as Americans do. We've not quite got to that level yet in the UK's rhetoric around dealing with countries that um, have a different view on China. And Russia has been a very interesting example of this. You've seen widespread condemnation of countries that the UK perceives as being or falling short where they should be. India, for a long time, a couple of weeks, was the, you know repeatedly told it needs to come with the other democracies. So one of the limitations of this network of liberty strategy is that it, it, it seems to be pushing countries to pick a side when most countries don't want, to be, don't want that, that choice to be forced upon them. Um. So what's the difference between the government view of China and Parliament's one? Perhaps the best summary of UK-China relations, political relations, can be uh, seen as the split between government's view on the UK relationship with China and Parliament's view. And for the first time in a long time, we have uh, a Labour Party and a Liberal Democrat Party that have a quote-unquote firmer view on what that relationship should look like. So both of them have backed the uh, view that there is genocide taking place in Xinjiang. They have called for harsher sanctions on uh, Hong Kong officials after the Hong Kong protests. And they have been very explicit in their support for Taiwan. Um, and the Conservative Party, which is in power right now, has its own problems in the back benches. The China Research Group is incredibly influential. And um, that's formed of just Conservative backbench MPs. The government's view is a bit more, uh, they would use the word nuanced, um, it's a bit more complex than that. And that's the nature of being in government is you can't necessarily have these black and white views in that sense. But they uh, effectively see trade as a way of keeping China at the table and potentially changing and, and helping China change in that sense through um, trade. That was the old school view of it. I think now they become more aligned with the US view, which is a sort of strategy of containment to an extent and changing the world around China, uh, strengthening multilash uh, multinational institutions and that sort of thing. But there is still a, uh, a significant gulf between where parliament would like the government to be and where the government is. So in addition to Xinjiang, you've mentioned, you know, that Hong Kong is also a big issue. Um, given the history, it's a I think we're coming at it from a bit of a different perspective than the US because the UK is making provision for certain Hong Kongers to come to the UK. Can you talk a little bit about what they're doing in... Yeah, so it's a great question. So Priti Patel, our Home Secretary, announced uh, this thing called the BNO scheme, um, the British National Overseas Scheme for Hong Kongers, which allows Hong Kongers, originally those born uh, before the handover in 1997, to come to the UK. Um, it was widely praised across Parliament as a uh, necessary intervention 
and sort of not the least we could do, but a very proactive and strategically sound offering for the Hong Kongers. Uh, Hong Kong and the Hong Kong cause polls quite highly in the UK. Uh, Hong Kongers receive a lot of support here. Um, we still have complications about how how we actually onboard Hong Kongers. And there's a series of charities who have popped up, which are doing a fantastic job working with the Hong Kong diaspora here in the UK. Uh, but we need to know more about this sort of the breakdown of where they're going and how they are uh, assimilating. And also we need to make sure that the Chinese diaspora and the Hong Kong diaspora aren't coming to um, coming to blows on various issues. The, the difficulty that parliament had and the government had with Hong Kong is parliament wants the government to go further in Hong Kong. It wants to see uh, sanctions against uh, officials, including Carrie Lam, um, John Lee, and that's that's not just a that's not limited to one party. You will have members from from the Labour front bench uh, coming up and speaking about how they want to see those sanctions. Same with the Liberal Democrats, and same with the Scottish National Party, the SNP, as well as the Conservative backbenchers themselves. So, the government has you know it's not going to do that um, anytime soon. Uh, so it's a it's an ongoing source of friction between parliament and government once again. And you know, in terms of numbers, how many people you know BNO passport holders have we actually seen coming to the UK? I think um, I think we've had over a hundred and twenty thousand, but I'll have to confirm that really quickly. Okay. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about sort of the differences then between the US and the UK approach. I mean, it sounds like the two countries are generally aligned in their views towards China. Are they taking different approaches in addressing their concerns? I think so. I think the, um, we'll touch on this idea of expertise later on, but I think the US is very fortunate to have a wide and deep uh, range of expertise on US-China relations. And ultimately, the US and China are the two superpowers here. Um, while some in British politics might like to think of themselves as a third superpower at the table, that's just not the reality anymore. So UK-China relations are different from US-China relations in the sense that US-China relations can afford to be a bit more emphatic and they can afford to have a trade war, uh, even if it causes misery for many. And let me re repatch that part. But the US and, the, uh, and China can have a trade war, but the UK and China could not have a trade war. Um, Likewise, our government has never signaled an intention to have that. Uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is on record as being very pro-Chinese investment into the UK, um, obviously not in strategically sensitive areas uh, increasingly. But we have a different approach to China relations than the Americans do, although I would argue that by and large we tend to follow the Americans on, on most of these issues. Does that sort of aspect to, you know, having these strong opinions about China, but also you know, not enacting these sort of like trade barriers or, you know, not decoupling. Is that something that's being discussed in parliament? This sort of um, gulf between the issues and what's actually happening in terms of trade and um, money going back and forth? Yeah, it absolutely is. So we had a, a landmark piece of legislation passed through parliament last year, which was the trade bill. And there was a campaign dubbed the Genocide Amendment to include an amendment which would stop the UK seeking preferential trade agreements with countries believed to be committing genocide. So there's backbench concern that the UK government is prioritizing economic ties to China and with China over human rights values. Um, and that's not particularly a recent concern, but it's become more and more apparent as the news comes out of Xinjiang that that is at the forefront of British parliamentarians' mind. And you're right to pick up the difference between the economic relationship versus the political rhetoric. That does definitely play on MPs' minds, and you can see it in parliamentary questions. But MPs are not, the majority of MPs are not in the mind that we should completely disengage from China, um, that we should be pushing for complete uh, decoupling. That's not really where they're at. What we're often lacking is a, if this, then what? So there's very few people putting out what, uh, an idea of what they would like the relationship to look like beyond what they don't want, if that makes sense. One more question on this topic before we sort of move on to talking about expertise um, within the UK on China. Um, we've touched on Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Um, what's the UK's attitude towards Taiwan? Okay, so the UK government doesn't officially recognize Taiwan as a country. 
um, that's not changed at all. But Taiwan is increasingly at the front of mind uh, in British foreign policy discussions around uh, China. And the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has increased uh, the prominence at which Taiwan is is featured in uh, discussions in parliament and in the corridors and in the, in the sort of uh, pubs afterwards as well when people talk foreign policy. Um, you know, always a great conversation at a pub. But the view is pretty simple, which is, uh, well, it's not simple, actually. I should, I should take that back. The view is uh, quite complex in the sense that MPs, uh, you know, they the ones who are interested in UK affairs, UK-China affairs and UK-Taiwan affairs are pretty uh, similar in their view, which is that the UK should be supporting Taiwan. We should be pushing for Taiwan to be recognized at the WHO and be able to be an observer there. Um, and we should be increasing and strengthening uh, the UK's ties with Taiwan. In fact, there was a backbench business debate on this very recently, um, at which you know the motion was passed that the UK should be looking to strengthen its relationship with Taiwan. So Taiwan is, is received very positively among the MPs that care um, about UK-China relations, which isn't that many, I have to add as well. Um, and the government hasn't, hasn't come close to signaling that it's going to change its view on uh, classifying Ch- uh, Taiwan as a country anytime soon. Okay, sure. So, Sam, what is the steering foreign policy document? Yeah, so the long-awaited integrated review, uh, which governs Britain's place in the world and the foreign policy around it, uh, arrived uh, in all of our inboxes in March 2021 uh, to much excitement. And as people powered through the document, so you could read it as fast as possible, one of the things that became quite apparent was that um, China holds an interesting place because it's at once described as a systemic competitor and then in the next sentence, the government says that it wants to have a positive trade and investment relationship with China. And so for a lot of China hawks, it uh, spoke to the fact that the UK's China strategy, which isn't public, is clearly muddled. Um, a long-standing criticism of the British government and its China policy is that it's, it's not transparent and it's clearly different across departments, um, although it currently is being worked on right now by civil servants. They're refreshing the whole strategy. But you've had a committees come out and say, I mean, there was a committee uh, last year that published a report which called it a strategic void. So although the integrated review was a really helpful um, starting point for relations with China and how they want to go or, or be going forward, uh, it, it still hasn't really set out a firm direction of travel. Mm. Okay, let's kind of sort of shift a bit. And we've talked a lot about sort of people in parliament who are interested in this sort of relation and how we sort of approach China, how would you rate the understanding of China? So that's a great question. Um, I I often feel there's an overwhelmingly negative view of uh, British MPs and British researchers' understanding of China. Um, We don't have a huge amount of Mandarin speakers or experts coming in from foreign policy think tanks. That's definitely true. And MPs researchers are not hired to do, you know, a certain brief. You would not have an MPs researcher really hired to do the Russia brief or uh, the French brief. They're brought in as generalists. So that's a natural repercussion of that system. What we do have is a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of very young people who are very interested in UK-China relations. But um, across the board, I just don't think the understanding is particularly uh, good at this stage. Um, I'm not sure a lot of MPs would have a, a, a grasp of the opium wars or the century of humiliation. Um, and that sort of stuff really helps to contextualize uh, the relationship. You know, it doesn't justify, but it helps contextualize. But I, I, I do think it's easy to be very negative about the lack of uh, knowledge. But I would, I would say that the people I meet, and I, I'm fortunate to meet a lot of people who are interested in UK-China relations, are overwhelmingly interested overwhelmingly interesting and very keen to make an impact. Um, And just a quick note on the difference between uh, the office of an MP, a backbench MP versus, uh, you know, an American senator. As a backbench MP, you might have three staff, quite young, and all generalists uh, who'll be working on everything from, you know, Doris saying that it's too many potholes through to Michael saying the school fees are too high. And then they're expected to go and speak about UK-Taiwan relations and then a debate on Partygate. So it's a very wide brief. They're always flat out, but we're, we're fortunate to have a group of MPs, uh, some older and more experienced, some younger and more interested, or not more interested, but some younger and interested, 
who are keen to understand the UK's relationship with China. Um, so I'm 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 very positive about it. I uh, I would love to see some more investment and expertise brought in, but we're not there yet. To what extent is the historical relationship between the UK and China still relevant? Um, I don't think they could have had a worse start in terms of the initial establishment of diplomatic relations between the two countries. There does need to be um, a slightly better understanding of the UK's previous relationship with China and the language we we use. So I'll give you an example. Um, Recently, you've seen a slew of countries uh, in the Commonwealth say that they're not going to have the Queen as head of state anymore. So these countries are going to become republics. And the coverage in the UK media uh, instantly tied China as the instigator of this uh, sort of rebellious attitude. They said that some of them ran, you know, uh, pieces saying that this was New Age imperialism from the Chinese and type colonialism type stuff. So those are two very heavy words, um, not just in discourse in, in Western countries, but also in how China perceives the use of those. I just, my personal view on this is I just don't think that's helpful at all. It's not an accurate way to describe it. And uh, I, I, my preference would be to move away from the term imperialism around it. I think it has a lot of weight that's not applied properly in this context. Um, but at the same time, you know, China is a superpower and it can't justify its behavior now when it comes to the UK-China relationship by saying or by referring to uh, the Opium War or the UK's uh, governance at that time, you know. There was, there's some really interesting stuff the British Embassy in Beijing has been doing on this, um, including a piece last year from the ambassador's account that discussed uh, the Boer War and the UK's use of concentration camps and uh, internment camps there. And the, the sort of turn was that we have made these mistakes before. So learn from us on this. This is not good stuff. If these social wounds take years and years and decades and decades to heal. It is not the way to do it. Um, so I, I, I would like to see that, that, that sort of level of, of rhetoric around it rather than pointing things and, and, and flinging uh, mud. Are you seeing much um, impetus for training sort of a younger generation of people whose grief will be more specifically geared to, towards China? So interestingly, the China Research Group has just held a uh, hiring spree for interns and they had very, very, very many applications for it. There is... A huge number of people who are 21, 22, Mandarin speakers who have come out of university who want to work in UK-China affairs, but the jobs aren't there right now. Um, jobs that pop up are massively oversubscribed. And we do have some interesting new think tanks. The Council on Geostrategy is one of them. Um, Chatham House and Rusi, they're both established. But they don't. They, there's not enough jobs for these people that want to work in the political side of UK-China relations. They just don't exist really. If you're lucky, you might find an MP who is hiring an office staffer uh, and that MP might work on the China brief, but that's not guaranteed. That's the luck of the draw. Uh, so we have, we have lots of raw talent, lots of, lots of people who are really enthusiastic, but not, not a huge amount of places for them to go. And so rightly, you know, rightly so, people need to pay their bills. They, they go and, and, and there's other reasons for doing it too, but they go and work in these private sector companies um, and do fascinating work there. Uh, which is a shame, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a shame for us in politics because you get to miss out on these diverse range of views. Um, and it's always good to have young people working in politics, uh, you know, just to sort of shake things up. Yeah, I guess when I see ads that require Mandarin speakers, it is usually geared towards more business um, than politics. Um, the other one I sometimes see is like GCHQ, ah. looking for people. Yes. Well, look, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not endorsed by GCHQ or MI5 or MI6, but MI5, MI6, and GCHQ are all hiring Mandarin speakers right now. So, if they get any applications, GCHQ, MI5, and MI6, you know where to find me, uh, and please use my affiliate link for that. And uh, yeah, <laughs> no, being serious though, that is a uh, I would yeah amazing, and they are hiring right now for Mandarin speakers. Um, get on it. It's funny because I remember seeing the adverts over the years and usually the ads come with like this little clip of like someone speaking Mandarin and it's like, if you can understand it, your Chinese is good enough. I was kind of surprised about how low the level was. Yeah, I mean, I'll confess not being a Mandarin speaker, so everything uh, is a high level to me, but um, I, I, they have definitely ratched up their hiring. You know, uh, China has been identified 
by the government or by Liz Truss effectively as uh, one of the issues of the next decade. And the Integrator Review effectively said that China would be the geopolitical issue of the next decade. Um, so we, we need to you know rapidly increase the amount of people we have in the Secret Service who are speaking Mandarin. Uh, and the same goes for the Foreign Office and for the different government departments. They have been on a bit of a hiring spree there too. Yeah, it's it's all it's it's positive. You, it can be easy to be negative about it, and uh, I'm often the first to criticize the lack of Mandarin speakers, including myself, who are working in this area. Um, but yeah, there there are jobs. They just tend to be at the secret services right now. Yeah, I also guess that like the pedagogy is still like very much developing for how to teach it to say English speakers. You know, it's definitely come on leaps and bounds since I started learning, which was like 2013. Um, but you know, like I've been to like sort of language schools in London mm. and I was just like, yeah, this is awful. Like, how do you expect someone to learn a language teaching it that, that way? Um, I've also met people who've kind of gone through the UK universities doing China studies or even doing Mandarin as a degree that then go to China and they can't, you know, order food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, from the political point of view, you often see Confucius Institutes mentioned in the UK's uh, parliament. Um, they're usually roundly criticized as being influence operations, but today there's not really been a coherent strategy put forward as to how we would even begin to replace them as uh, centers for learning Mandarin. Um, and that sort of taps into a wider political issue, which is that there's lots of people pointing to the low-hanging fruit in the UK-China relationship. You know, we need to protect our areas of national security. We shouldn't have universities so exposed to Chinese companies. We shouldn't have Confucius Institutes. But very few MPs or peers or actually people in general are putting forward a coherent strategy as to uh, what comes next. And there are some people putting it forward. I should, I should sort of clarify that. You know, Charlie Parton's written a really interesting paper on that. As has Rana Mitter. Um, the China Research Group had a Next Steps document. Um, and the Council on Geostrategy does some interesting stuff too. So there are these voices pushing that forward. But by and large, when you go to these UK-China debates and you watch them and you read the transcripts, there's not a huge amount of what should we do next. It's more why are these things still happening? Are Confucius Institutes as big a debate as they are in the US? I don't think so yet. Um, every now and then, they sporadically get mentioned in Parliament. Uh, people if they have a view on them, tend to think that they are influence operations. Um, how many people have actually visited them is probably fairly limited, uh, as is the research around them. But that is a, that is a sort of prevailing view. And I know there are uh, right now um, different groups doing research on Confucius Institutes, trying to really actually understand uh, what's going on there. You know, and that, that, that taps into the wider issue, which is that so much of the UK-China relationship has not really been audited in that sense. We don't really know what's going on. And therefore... A lot of these presumptions and accusations are made on guesswork rather than anything factual or data-driven. Um, so there are different groups that have spent a lot of time trying to work out exactly what is going on. And uh, Confucius Institutes will fall under that category as and when we get more data and a better understanding of what's going on there. Yeah, I actually spent some time studying at a Confucius Institute in London. I lasted six lessons and I dropped out because oh. it was so bad. Oh, um, but I mean, I would say two things about them. Like... One, they're significantly cheaper mm -hmm. than private businesses doing that. And the second, that like, I don't think they could organize a piss up in a brewery. <laughs> um, there's also concern about higher education. And again, I think this is something that's also a concern in the US, but, it, it, but it's different, right? Exactly. So the, the UK's sort of higher education China issue is uh, a, a fascinating one. Um, so... We had uh, applications from Chinese students up 20% in 2021. And, um, you know, research has found that roughly a fifth of income for universities is derived from Chinese students. So we're quite exposed, if you want to term it like that, to Chinese students. Um, that's to say nothing at all of the incredible uh, impact that Chinese students have when they come to the UK and go on to have. But when it comes to Chinese companies investing in the UK, investing in British universities... It's a bit different. Um, it's a bit of an open playing field. And to tap back into that point about auditing the UK-China relationship to understand where our strengths and weaknesses are, it wasn't until skepticism towards the Chinese government started to build that um, people started to look into the uh, British universities' relationships with China. So 
I'll point point in the direction of a couple of people who are quite interesting on this. Um, there's a freelance journalist called Sam Dunning who went to Cambridge University and has consequently done a series of uh, investigations and scoops on Cambridge's relationship with uh, the Chinese firm Huawei. Um, if I just rattle off a quick stat on Huawei here, uh, you know, Cambridge University has taken over £25.7 million from Huawei since 2016. Uh, that was according to the Spectator. And uh, it's taken a total of 31 research grants over five years worth £18.3 million. Um, Oxford University in 2018 said it would stop taking money from Huawei. And uh, it's that, that, those are just two examples of universities across the UK that have quite high China exposure from Chinese companies investing here. And the concern here is, is a couple of things. First of all, there's concern about freedom of speech. Are these, um, by investing in these institutions, are these companies limiting what the university professors will say about them because they want to have the companies bringing in money? Um, there's a concern about uh, sort of dual purpose research. If I'm researching uh, graphene, you know, this a super um, technology, is the research I'm doing on making graphene uh, bottoms to watering jugs, is that applicable to also using graphene on mortar rounds? Um, and then there's also just the case of IP as well. You know, how to what to what extent are these companies able to access that sort of stuff? Um, and it's just it was just a very unaudited scene. We just didn't really know what was going on at all. Uh, the China Research Group had an investigation into it through a series of freedom of information requests. And they found that the 20 leading British universities had taken 40 million quid from <laughs> Huawei and other Chinese companies over the last couple of years, which is a fairly significant amount. Uh, all that said, you know, there has been very few British companies that have stepped up to put money in at the same level. So you can understand to a degree why these British universities are, are frustrated about this as an issue. I was an education journalist for a while. And I would hear universities time, time again say, we need to diversify, you know, particularly with regards to sort of like international student tuition, right? Because, you know, some of them are getting like, you know, 40% coming from Chinese students. Yeah. But their solution was like, let's start marketing more in India. Yeah, classic. And it's like, that's not diversifying. That's just, you know, moving the problem to somewhere else. It's, it seems like there isn't really a coherent strategy for universities to you know, keep themselves running and keep themselves financed without putting all the eggs in one basket. Exactly. So it's, you know, your universities come with their own bureaucracy and you're right, often advocates of diversification for income have said, why don't you tap into the Indian market, you know, get the Indian middle class market to come on board. That's what Joe Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson's brother has been very strong on. But uh, it's not a, you know, one shot cure. It's not going to be the thing that moves them away from Chinese students here. And the difficulty there is as well is that people tend to construe Chinese students coming over here with universities being overly exposed. And these are, these are just Chinese students like you and me who want to learn in you know, UK universities. They're not agents of the state. They're not, they, they, we just can't be in a position where they become political football. It's just not going to be good at all. Uh, backtracking slightly um, to when we were talking about sort of Mandarin proficiency and expertise. Do we actually have Mandarin speaking MPs that have you know, lived, worked, studied in China? Yeah, so I think by my count, we have three MPs who speak Mandarin, and I will definitely get flamed for getting this wrong. But I think by my count, we have Richard Graham, who chairs the China APPG, who uh, spent time in China, spent time in Xinjiang before, um, you know, went through the ranks as a swire man. Uh, we have Catherine West, who is Labour's Minister for Asia, Shadow Minister for Asia. She taught in China uh, and and then we have Mark Logan, who used to work in uh, one of the uh, diplomatic posts in China. And he's a great Mandarin speaker. Uh, so I think those are the three that would speak Mandarin. So kind of pairing with that theme of like the Chinese view of the UK. Uh, he's not the ambassador today, but I would say a shoe in for being, you know, the major foot soldier on the Chinese side in uh, UK-China relations would be a... Uh, our good old friend who retired last year, Liu Xiaoming. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about him and his legacy? Yeah, so Ambassador Liu was uh, here for a long time, actually. Um, and I think towards the end of his uh, time here, that coincided with the deterioration of UK-China relations. Um, so he was in a difficult position in a sense that he was 
obviously the ambassador in a country where the relationship was really souring. Um, things got pretty pretty bad. Uh, he appeared on a couple of um, you know shows like BBC Newsnight and that sort of thing, and it was a, a largely overwhelmingly uh, negative appearance. Um, I don't think the relationship is uh, particularly sound. Although he's recently come back uh, and done a sort of tour of the UK as part of a wider tour of Europe and met some of his uh, the people he used to see here, um, which is nice, I guess. Well, I mean, my joke makes no sense if you don't touch on the feet thing. <laughs> I am deliberately not touching the feet thing. I thought you were going to touch on it in your introduction. And I was like, <laughs> I did not want to touch on the feet thing at all. <laughs> okay, for context, um, Liu Xiaoming, Twitter account was allegedly hacked, according to the Chinese embassy, for the sole purpose of liking a video of um, a lady performing, I believe, sex acts that involved feet. Definitely nothing to do with the ambassador, I'm sure. So, my last point on the Chinese embassy, his replacement, I understand, is actually banned from parliament. Is that still a thing? Yeah, so, so what happened there was that um, the new ambassador, Chen Zhiguang, was invited to uh, onto the parliamentary estate by the APPG on China, or for China. Uh, APPG stands for All Party Parliamentary Group. Uh, that's a sort of um, group that brings together MPs from across the aisle uh, around a certain issue. So the APPG on China, uh, for China, invited the ambassador onto the parliamentary estate. Uh, it was about six or seven months after uh, the, the PRC, the, the Chinese government, had sanctioned um, a handful of MPs and never really provided uh, the criteria as to what had caused them to sanction them or what those sanctions actually meant beyond, you know, the sort of general stuff. So the parliamentary mood was not uh, particularly in favor of having uh, the Chinese ambassador on the estate. And what we saw there was the Speaker of the House, uh, Lindsay Royal, make an intervention and effectively say that given the nature of where we were uh, with the Chinese government sanctioning uh, British politicians and uh, you know private citizens, it was not really right to have uh, the ambassador uh, on the estate. So... He said, I can actually read you out his uh, exact statement. He said, I do not feel it is appropriate for the ambassador for China to meet on the Commons estate and in our place of work when this country, when his country has imposed sanctions against some of our members. Um, and that was also agreed by the, uh, mem- the speaker for the House of Lords as well. Um, so Lord McFall, who issued his own statement too. And for context, this was the sanctions that the Chinese government put in against people like Adrian Zenz for their work on Xinjiang. Exactly. So they so they sanctioned a series of MPs here too. You know, uh, Tim Loughton, Nuzgani, Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, they sanctioned the China Research Group. Um, it was quite a, quite a random crew of people uh, in March um, 2021. So it was several months after that uh, in September. Okay, awesome. So at the end of every episode, uh, we have a outro song. Any thoughts about what you would like yours to be? Uh, can I pick any song? Yeah. Yeah, can we go for Shook Ones 2 by Mob Deep? Okay, sure. Oh, you might have to write that one down for me. My favorite song. <laughs> um, Sam, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, where can people go online to find Beijing to Britain and to keep track of what you're working on? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, people can go online at www.beijingtobritain.com and they can see what we offer there. Uh, we also have a Twitter account, which is at Beijing to Brit. And then uh, those would be the two places I would direct to you. Uh, if you have the direct hate mail, uh, please don't. <laughs> I got you stuck off the realness. We be the infamous, you heard of us. Official Queensbridge murderers. The mark comes equipped for warfare. Beware of my crime family who got enough shots to share for all those who want to profile and pose. Rock you in your face, stab your brain with your nose bone. You all alone in these streets, cousin. Every man for themselves in his land, we be gunning. And keep them shook crews running like they supposed to. They come around, but they never come close to. I can see it inside your face, you're in the wrong place. Cowards like you just get their whole body laced up with bullet holes and such. Speak the wrong words, man, and you will get touched. You can put your whole army against my team, and I guarantee you it'll be your very last time breathing. Your simple words just don't move me. You're minor, we major, you all up in the game and don't deserve to be a player Don't make me have to call your name out, your crew is featherweight My gunshots will make you levitate, I'm only 19 but my mind is older When the things get for real, my warm heart turns cold Another nigga deceased, another story is told
really And yo done sparked the Philly So I could get my mind off these yellow back niggas While they still alive, I don't know, go figure Meanwhile, back in Queens, the realness and foundation If I die, I couldn't choose a better location When the slugs penetrate, you feel a burning sensation Getting closer to God in a tight situation now Take these words home and think it through Or the next rhyme I write might be about you Sunday show, cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks Scared to death and scared to look, they shook Cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks Scared to death and scared to look Living the life that of diamonds and guns There's numerous ways you can choose to earn funds Some get shot, locked down, and turn nuns Cowardly hearts and straight up shook ones Shook ones He ain't a crook, son He just a shook one For every rhyme I write, it's 25 the life. There was so much to get you trust, safeguard in my life. Ain't no time for hesitation. The only leads to incarceration. You don't know me, there's no relation. Queensbridge, and you don't play. I don't got time for your petty thinking mind, son. I'm bigger than those. Claiming that you pack heat, but you're scared to hold. And what the smoke clears, you be left with one and you don't. 13 years in the projects, my mentality is what, kid? You talk a good one, but you don't want it. Sometimes I wonder, do I deserve to live? Or am I going to burn the hell for all the Things I did, no time to dwell on that cause my brain reacts Front if you want, kid, lay on your back I don't fake jazz, kid, you know I bring it to your life Stay in a child's place, kid, you out of line Criminal minds thirsty for recognition I'm sipping, E&J got my mind flipping I'm bucking, digging my was out of hope for hustling Get that loot, kid, you know my function Cause long as I'm alive, I'm alive, illegal And once I get on them, I put on all my people's React with lyrics like Max, I hit your dome up When I roll up the beat, go sleep because I'm free Sunny shook, this ain't no such thing as halfway crooks Scared to death and scared to look, they shook This ain't no such thing as halfway crooks Scared to death and scared to look, they shook This ain't no such thing as halfway crooks Scared to death and scared to look, they shook This ain't no such thing as halfway crooks Living the life that comes with guns. There's numerous ways you can choose to earn funds. Some get shot, locked down, and turn guns. Cowardly hearts and straight up shook ones, shook ones. He ain't a crook, son. He's just a shook one.